Welcome back to the third year of the Netflix podcast, Present Company. I'm your host, Krista Smith. This season, we have something really special for you. I'll be exploring a universal human emotion with our guests. Fear, a word that has gathered new meaning for many of us over the past year. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm excited to be sitting down with Rebecca Hall. For years, Rebecca has brought her versatile acting skills to numerous productions, including films such as The Prestige, Christine, and The Night House, not to mention all the work she's done on the stage. But now, she's stepped behind the camera to take on her directorial debut, Passing. This film is incredibly layered and urgent, intimately exploring racial identity, femininity, sexuality, and motherhood through two stunning lead performances by Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. Rebecca has brought such a personal and thoughtful lens to this project, and I can't wait for you to hear my conversation with her. So without further ado, Rebecca Hall. Rebecca Hall, thank you so much. Uh, it's great yeah. to see you. I just want to say thank you for coming in. It's great to see you in person. We had such a wild night last night celebrating the Academy Museum. Yeah. That was just incredible to be around people again and outside. I have to say, we were all tested. We all had to have a vaccination yeah, card. Yeah, had... less than seventy-two hours tested or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to keep all that stuff. Uh, it's like when I first moved to LA, I could never keep track of my valet card, and now it's like I got to keep track of my vaccination card, card my test some results. kind of QR code that yeah. says something. Yeah. <laughs> how how was that to be back with your peers? In that room last night, and I don't. I don't think I kind of underestimated how sort of delightful it was going to be <laughs> just to see everyone in person. I mean, there were people there that I haven't seen for, like, bumped into Andrea Risborough at the end, and I probably haven't seen her for about yeah. seven years or something like that. You know, she did a production with my dad years ago, so I've known yeah. her for ages. But it was just so many friends, so many faces, and to see everyone out and people who you've been chatting to on Zooms for the last two years, it was nice to actually see them. Yeah, I met a couple of colleagues at Netflix and we're like, oh, you you, you have legs. You're taller than <laughs> you I thought. Legs. You know, we're, yeah, we've the big just, shocker. Surprise. <laughs> we've just been from the waist up. We've just it, been looking so at each other. But passing. You're here because I want to talk to you about this film. And there's the film, which is I loved. It's incredible. It's it's this poem. It's this noir thriller. Mm -hmm. It's a relationship study. I have so many angles into this. It's a thing about motherhood. For me, mm -hmm. I was like watching mm -hmm. all of this unfold. But at the same time, it's your directorial debut. So yeah, <laughs> that is also that well, its yeah. own its own genuine moment that I need to talk to you about. Because when I met you. You were an actress. You still mm -hmm. are an actress, obviously. We were able to do some fun things together while I was at Vanity Fair, and I've always remained a fan of yours. I know if you're doing something, it's got some value, and it's going to be worthy in numerous ways because you don't do things lightly. So the fact that you decided to adapt this book and direct it. And I was doing the math in my head and I was like, wait, she had a baby because you now have a toddler. So you must have yeah. had a you you had a young infant. Yeah, she was one. She was one when we started shooting. When you took this on. So just t take me through, obviously, this book. You read this when you were like 25 years old and yes. attempted yeah. a screenplay at that time. I did. Yeah. What spoke to you about it then? Well, that, that whole moment was a bit of a, I don't know how to describe it, something like a 
fever dream or something. It was a very precise moment in my life. I think I rented my first New York apartment in 2008, you know, and it was this moment of hope for America. Obama had just been elected. And increasingly, the more time that I spent in America, the more I was thinking about, okay, here we are. This is a country that was a slave state for however many years, then an apartheid state, and now whatever it is, but maybe not quite the realization of fulfillment of some sort of egalitarian dream anyway. But that story of enslavement figures so hugely in this country's narrative about itself, about its creation. It felt increasingly hard to be living here and not reckon with how it might figure into my own personal story. I grew up in England with an American mother who, to me, always looked black. And... (laughs) You know, her family were in Detroit. Her father had passed away. I was very cut off from all of it, I suppose. She would give me snippets of some... Maybe he was Native American, Indigenous, or maybe he was... You know, maybe he was black, but we don't know. Or on other days it would be like, I think he was, and I think we are. Cut to 2008, New York. I'm walking around thinking, how do I find out more how do I grapple with this you know and I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even know there was a word for what my grandfather must have done to result Mm -hmm. in me going through the world as a white person now technically Mm -hmm. I mean looking that way anyway I didn't know there was a word like passing and someone handed me this book and said the thing that you're talking about this sort of mystery in your family this confusion around identity and you might get something from this and I essentially inhaled it It was such a revelation to me, both personally and artistically, because it was not only did it give me a historical context for what my grandfather must have done. I now know, thanks to researchers and going on the Henry Louis Gates show, Finding Your Roots, to be out in January. I now know it is exactly what he did. I also know extraordinary things about his father and the whole family history, which is kind of extraordinary, including, you know, my great grandfather, (laughs) knew Frederick Douglass, shockingly. Anyway, that's a side story. But here I had this book in my possession, which gave me a framework to grant my grandfather compassion, my mother compassion, my whole family on my mother's side. And I had context for something that I didn't, you know, the sort of psychological family dynamics that you think of as more or less purely psychological mm-hmm. you factor in something like that and it there's another dimension there's another you know there's a social dimension there's a economic dimension there's mm-hmm. all sorts of things I wrote the adaptation really because I just wanted to sit with it longer <laughs> I didn't understand mm. so much and I was thinking about things that I'd never thought about before and you know you have to understand that not only does Nella Larson write about racial passing. She uses it as a metaphor to essentially talk about any way in which our insides don't match up with our outsides. It's a plea for nuance, that book. It's about the limits of those categories. Nobody can be defined purely as black or white. Nobody can be defined purely as a wife, a mother, a a woman, (laughs) Mm -hmm. a man. It's all about the limits of those categories and the problems with trying to fit into that category. Mm -hmm. And that spoke to me on a very human level as well. 
I think if I hadn't sat down to write it in that moment, I'm not sure that I ever would have. It was very specific. The fact that I didn't really think I was going to turn it into a movie, I just felt like it was something I was doing for me personally, mm-hmm. I think gave me enormous freedom because I think I would have been very intimidated if I'd been like, and now I'm going to turn this great work of American literature that into a, a black and white film in 4.3. I think I, <laughs> I'm not sure I would have continued. It was a funny process because as I was writing that sort of fever dream pass or whatever you want to call it, so many things crystallized in my head about what the movie would look like. I immediately knew that it had to be in black and white. I knew that I wanted it to be in a 4-3 aspect ratio, which I didn't even have that language. I just sort of was like, I want it to look skinny like the old movies did. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners, that's like, <laughs> yeah. if you turn on Turner Classic Movies, yes, TCM. Yeah, TCM, TCM, exactly. you'll understand what yeah. that 4-3 ratio is. But it does, it reminds me of a movie that, I would watch on TCM and be like, what is this movie? Oh, my God. And I would be immediately drawn in. But now we realize that kind of movie with two black female leads would never Never have been been made. made. It's barely being made now. No. So it never would have been made, certainly, back then. It was a very small part, not the whole part of the the black and white and the 4-3, but there was a sense of... You know, this book was written 93 years ago. It should have been turned into a film immediately. And it's not like there wasn't precedent of movies at that time that centered on the emotional lives of two women. There, mm-hmm. there was, it's just not two black women. I mean, there was the movies that I love and grew up watching as a kid with people like Barbara Stanwyck and Betty Davis. And, you know, those movies were some incredibly innovative and sort of bold in their approach to looking mm-hmm. at women. Melodrama, yes. Yeah. But I didn't, I never wanted this film to be. I wanted it to have a flavor and a little, an acknowledgement of that. And so we spoke a lot about the 40s, weirdly, even though it's set in the 20s, we, mm-hmm. about the sort of tonal 40s films. Mm-hmm. But I never wanted it to be like a nostalgia piece or a museum piece. And I think, so there were other aspects of the movie making that I tried to take firmly out of that place and put in a sort of more contemporary world, mm-hmm. like sound design. And it's beautifully shot the world you create is incredible so i have to say hats off to you and the entire like harlem in that the end of the 20s and the production design the costume design and the music is incredible yeah the music yeah the music is incredible that that piano piece that kind of goes all the way through it's like this it's a funny story that piece of piano so when it came to writing the second draft of the real draft of the script that I wanted to actually take to people and say okay take me seriously as a filmmaker I had discovered this pianist this Ethiopian pianist who's now she's still alive she's now 90 something wow and she she's in exile from Ethiopia has been forever and she wrote that piece of music in the 60s and it's called Homeless Wanderer and I was like what this is the movie. You know, part of the job of a director is constantly describing the what's in your head or the tone of something, which is very difficult to pin down, to like illustrate to people. Like, this is how the movie feels. And I would play that piece of music to everyone and say, like, this is the movie. Whatever this sort of delicate, yet almost oppressively repressive, but also hauntingly beautiful 
melody, this is the feeling of the movie. If we can make the movie feel like this piece of music, then we've done we've done it. Mm-hmm. We've done what I'm after. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge thing. And every time I wrote any iteration of the script, I would always have that playing. Yeah, it's very effective. Very, it works. It's beautiful. It ties it all. I mean, I I felt it. So yeah. And then Dev Devonte came in, did a really clever thing with the rest of the music. Was that he? You know, there's not much. I only wanted that piece of music to be the only score really mm-hmm. and everything else I wanted to exist in the world and specifically a trumpet player who's on the other side of the street from where they're living and Dev sort of did this incredible thing of working out something that sort of sounds like practice but also like a trumpet player trying to find his voice and it ends up sounding like Homeless Wanderer so there's this kind of echoing going on. There is this whole musical subplot that no one will ever really get apart from me but I enjoy it. <laughs> and we're talking about it right now so hopefully, yeah, so hopefully somebody will get to that. <laughs> someone will understand the movie within yeah. the, the music movie as well as the acting movie. All right so I just want to talk about you you discover this it's it's a lot of emotions mm-hmm. you've got to deal with your own family emotions mm-hmm. and all those delicacies that are involved in that now you're casting it you're going to direct it yes. so you have to talk these two brilliant actresses and Tessa is someone that I've known you know from the very start of her career she's incredibly gifted incredibly as gifted. as is Ruth obviously Ruth yes. Nega Tessa Thompson but you're a white woman this is your first film I appear and white you appear white <laughs> yes exactly yeah. so you're you're taking this on I want to hear about those conversations because the dynamics of the women I mean yes it's all in the title they can pass as white one chooses to one doesn't yeah but the layers. The conversations were, Ruth was the first person to be cast and I cornered her at a party, I think, when we were both promoting. She was promoting Loving and I was promoting Christine here. And not dissimilar to last night, actually. And I just sort of, I'd been thinking about her for years for it and watching her and admiring Mm -hmm. her. And so I just sort of said, I... I have a script based on this book. Do you know it? And she's like, yes, I know that book. Send it. I sort of assumed that I would cast Irene first. So I was kind of assuming that she would want to play Irene, although I didn't say anything really when I sent her the script. And then we met up for a drink and she just said, I, I love this, what you've done. I love this adaptation. I love the book. I love the story. I'll play whatever part you want me to play in it because I want to be a part of this. But you have to let me play Claire. (laughs) In terms of the conversations that Ruth and I had, I sort of let it be a little bit. One of the things I think I've had the good fortune to learn is that a lot of directing actors is casting the right people and then working out what they need and letting them get on with it, what they need to feel supported, Mm -hmm. you know. And some don't need very much. And some people, you know, some actors know a character. And that's sort of what happened with Ruth. I just felt that she had she had an instinct for Claire that I didn't want to mess with. So I was just excited to see what she would do. And yeah, there was shaping and guidance and all that kind of thing. But she had an affinity with that character that was very particular. So after Ruth was cast, I'd had my eye on Tessa for a while. I'd been watching her and I thought she was so extraordinary. But I'd never seen her do anything like this before. And... So we had this conversation on the phone, which was quite funny because I'd already been told that I would never get her. She wasn't available and she had, you know, whatever, how many projects. 
And so the conversation on the phone was a bit awkward because it was like, well, you're not available, but, you know, what do you think about this script? And I came off the phone with her so convinced that there had to be a way to make her be in it because she understood this character so completely. And Irene is a tricky, tricky character. I mean, the big irony about the movie is that it sort of telegraphs that it's about this woman who makes this choice to pass, but then it actually spends all this time with this other woman who has set herself up to be the morally correct one, the righteous one, who's always doing the right thing. And she's quietly having a nervous breakdown because of how bound she is by doing the right thing. Irene's a tough one because nothing is explicit. She doesn't even know that she's having this Mm -hmm. breakdown. You've got to convince an audience that you are reliable and a reliable narrator for the first quarter of the movie and then you've got to very slowly drip feed them the sense that maybe you're not seeing things clearly, that you're unstable and that even though there's this other one who's walking around literally saying, I'm not safe, I I don't have morals, you know, then you get the one who's like, literally dropping things on the floor and is actually a powder keg. Mm -hmm. Tessa and I spoke a lot about all that stuff and she understood that duality and that tension. She has no room to say, I find being a mother difficult or Mm -hmm. I don't know how to be a mother or I don't know how to be a good wife. Arguably, I don't know how to be straight. Mm -hmm. Like there is, she does have a sort of sexual component attraction to Claire and there's definitely a read of the film that where she projects so much mm-hmm. well actually it's a yeah actually it's a love story it's anyway. a love story I mean I feel like <laughs> yeah, it is a love story it it's a love story of like what what would have been and sliding doors and the consequences of our choices and yeah. you know when we make these lies for ourselves that we feel are our dreams and then you're in these, then you're in it. Because it's like an erotics of longing, really. Mm -hmm. It's like a, you know, you have the longing on both sides. You have the longing from Claire to come back to what she's left behind. Mm -hmm. And you have the longing of Irene to be free like Claire is. You know, Claire goes through the world taking what she wants when she wants so she can be happy. Mm -hmm. And Irene is incapable of doing that. Mm-hmm. So it's all this kind of push-pull, two sides of the coin, and that creates this incredible chemistry between the two of them. Mm-hmm. So when you're directing, yeah, what was your favorite part of the day when you're directing? <laughs> Getting through it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah. Uh, and that's a wrap? Yeah. No, I, I mean, yes, we made this movie for very little money for a period mm-hmm. film. You know, that's the truth, and it's not... No one should have to make a movie, a period movie, for what we made it on. So we were up against it all the time. And the pressure to keep thinking clearly and get everyone to deliver what I needed them to deliver by the end of the day was really intense. But I think the big surprise was that it was an intensity that made me feel like I was like really firing on all cylinders. I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever felt more used mm-hmm. utilized is a better word you know mm-hmm. I just I have a lot of interests beyond acting and I always have and it it was the first time that I felt everything was firing and what was like the hardest part of the day was it the best part and the hardest part was similar or was there the hardest part of the day for me was I realized that I think I've developed very good ability to deal with a lot of noise I'm quite a sort of introverted thinker like to have a clear answer about something 
I need to be completely by myself for five minutes. And that's nigh on impossible <laughs> on a film set. I remember we shot a lot in um, a brownstone in Harlem. It was a real house in Harlem that we shot in. And I ended up commandeering a bathroom with a monitor. <laughs> it was just me and the focus puller in there. I mean, literally, I like mm-hmm. nobody else could come in and there would be like knocks. And then if someone asked me a hard question, I'd be like, I don't know right now. Give me three minutes, leave. And But sort of... Realising I could do that was really important, but also tough because I think certainly a first time director, you have a tendency to want to just have all the answers immediately and be present for everyone and say, yes, yes, yes everything's fine. And, and that's just not always true. And I think you, you, you respect the directors that are capable of saying, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I certainly do. Mm-hmm. So that was hard. And you shot it in black and white. Yeah. It's always an uphill battle to get any movie made. We should just say that. It's yeah. never easy. Oh, never either. No, no, <laughs> Even absolutely. when you have $200 million Either, oh, and, yeah. and Brad Pitt or whoever yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. right? You know, yeah. there's always challenges. Yes. But this in particular, I'm going to shoot this in black and white, and I yeah. have this very specific thing. Yeah, it wasn't an um, easy ask. <laughs> I'm a first-time filmmaker, and this yeah. is going to be black and white and 4-3 and about a controversial subject matter. And uh, no, it was not an easy ask. I, I know. What kept you <laughs> moving forward through that bumpy process of no's? No, no, no. Yes, if it's in color. Yes, if it's yeah. X, Y, and Z. Like, how did you stay the course? I just think that the vision that I had for the movie or the movie that I was had playing in my head felt like the only movie. It felt like a sort of platonic, there can only, <laughs> this can, it can only be this way. I wasn't interested in making it any other way. So the more no's I encountered, the more dogged I became, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone said to me, oh, yeah, it's great. We love it. It's a brilliant script. We'll make it for the money you need to make it for if it's in colour. But a lot of people who I love and respect said to me, maybe you should just compromise on the black and white thing. Does it really need to be black and white? It absolutely has to be black and white. And why does it have to be black and white? Well, on a sort of really like basic level, I, I, f- I felt that the most interesting way to make a movie about colorism was to take all the color out of it. It's kind of a big joke, a bit. <laughs> because the point about Nella Larson and the point about this story is that there are all these binaries all the time. There are all these categories. There are all these rigid things. There's black, there's white, male, female, gay, straight. But it's always in... And through constantly showing these binaries, she's also revealing how preposterous it is, how limited that is for our, for ourselves. And, you know, it just sort of struck me so crystal clear that, like... It was the same for black and white film because black and white film isn't black and white. It's grey. So that's the sort of the joke. But it's also like shade and tone become abstractors in a black and white world. It becomes expressionistic. I don't believe that cinema reality has to reflect our reality. I do believe that it absolutely has to reflect emotional truth entirely. But how you get there... You know, you can do it poetically. You can do it visually poetically. And that's what movies allow us is that kind of innovation and that kind of. And for me, it it wasn't about a cool choice or a a sort of film nerdy choice. It was about a choice that was integral to the story. It's like I wanted the world to be abstracted. So at any given moment, these women could be black or white. The context becomes different. Mm-hmm. You know, you take a scene like the scene at the beginning with John, who's the white man who doesn't know that his wife is passing. And he's in a hotel room with 
with her and with Tessa Thompson's character, Irene. And in that scene, because of the black and white, we were able to really saturate it with whiteness. Mm-hmm. You know, like the walls are white, the mm-hmm. light coming in is white. It's like a sort of overriding, like they've just been recontextualized, these women. And, you know, if that was in color, I think there would be a bit more... Well, you know, is he just being unobservant? Is he being an idiot? Like, why is he, right. why is he not seeing that these two women, who we know, we know Ruth Negger and Tessa Thompson are black. They, you know, we know that. So why isn't right. he seeing that? And that was important to me because actually, when it's black and white, and you, what you see is the white man has the power to decide who he wants everyone to be in this moment. So it becomes about context. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't become about can these women pass in the real. We're not in the real world. This is. This mm-hmm. is something that makes a draws attention to the sort of slippery nature of the reality of race. I have theories about him. Does he know and he's choosing not to because he can control because he as a white male, wealthy yeah. white male, he can control his own reality until he can't. Until he can't. Until, he until can't. the context is different and then he's it's he undeniable power and it's undeniable. Yeah. yeah. Maybe all of that is sort of is potent and deliberate mm-hmm. honestly. I mean I I kept thinking the more that we live in that space of ambiguity. The more we live in that space of, you know, something that I spoke to everyone, cast and department heads, is like, you know, everyone is passing in this movie. And you have to just, it's everyone's job to work out the costumes, the film itself, black mm-hmm. and white. Everyone, <laughs> everyone is passing. And with John, you know, Alexander Skarsgård and I had some chats and we were like, you know, how is he passing? He's just, you know, he's the racist white dude. What, what How's he passing? And I'm like, well... Maybe he's passing for a racist because he's actually in love with a black woman. There's a certain fetishization going on there. There's a thing happening that is complicated. So, you know, everyone ha- has that. And, you know, Andre's character, who I think is... He's excellent. Extraordinary in the film. Extraordinary performance. And so nuanced and delicate to show the pain of someone who is just desperately in love with his wife and losing her and maybe or maybe isn't having an affair. I spoke to him about how is he passing because in many ways he's the most straightforward. He says, he's like, let's get out of this country. This country is toxic for mm-hmm. everybody. Let's leave. And, you know, that's a pretty straightforward statement. But I suppose he's passing for someone that would be capable of having an affair. Correct. Well, he's also struggling with his moral. I think he's passing because he's having those feelings, whether it's I mean, that's whether it's a, real or a reflection of the great about the movie of, is, is you can kind of interpret all of that stuff. Yeah. But to me, he, it's an affair of the heart, whether or not it's actually a consummated affair. We, we don't know, but it's yeah. definitely an Absolutely. affair of that. OK, the ending and I'm not going to spoil it here, no. but it is very noir-esque. Yeah, it's. And I rewatched it several times to kind of decide, like, how do I feel about this ending? <laughs> Someone that consumes so much cinema. I love the way you allowed your audience to walk away with their own thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. And I have to imagine that that was a very deliberate choice. Obviously, nothing is accidental. But how hard was it for you to come to that decision? <laughs> The decision was fairly easy. The ending of the book is pretty ambiguous and it always struck me as something that was quite fascinating about it and important. And I remember having this thought that every possible explanation of what happened has to be possible. 
I was like, if we can find a way to shoot it so that all things could have happened, then that's the correct way to do mm. this. Doing that was harder. <laughs> right. Like, you know, working out the sort of action elements and the, the cuts and what snippets of what... I did storyboard everything, so there was a lot of me kind of imagining those sort of fast cuts and also thinking about those moments in Hitchcock films that there's suddenly a lot of choppy cuts and you don't see necessarily an act of violence, but you see the sort of pre and the aftermath mm -hmm. and you fill in the, the, you know, I was thinking a lot about that. Yeah, it was it was complicated. It was a bit of a dance to choreograph, mm. but fun. Also, it, it's something that came up in the edit as well. There were always cuts that swung too heavily towards one direction mm -hmm. or swung too heavily towards the next and not just with the ending but with the whole sort of like is he having an affair or is he not is it in her head or is she in love with Claire or is she not is she mm -hmm. just is this just jealousy is it you know there were always the, there were lots of different swings so there were always like these little tiny things that that we would do in the edit that would suddenly tip it way back in the other direction it was really fascinating to see how the tiniest change and you know and a scene in the first 15 minutes of the movie could affect how you interpreted the ending mm -hmm. i just remember there was one really key thing that happened this is slightly off your question but the very very end of the film again i don't want to give away two spoilers mm -hmm. but there is something that andre whispers into tess's ear which for the longest time wasn't there it was just his mouth moving it wasn't scripted but he says something and I was like is he saying what I th think he's saying and if he is that might be brilliant because that might even if for those people who have up to this point assumed one thing mm -hmm. about his character this is going to turn it around with five seconds to spare before the end of the movie <laughs> I love the the sense that people will come out of this film having very certain ideas and then when they talk to someone else that person might have a very certain idea that will be completely in opposition and the more they talk about that they'll realize that it's actually revealing more about where they're coming <laughs> approaching mm -hmm. you know where what they're grappling with personally in terms of their you know because this is applicable to everyone mm -hmm. this this sort of sense of how do you shape who you are in the world mm -hmm. like what's the story you tell about yourself and what's the one that society puts on you this is all human stuff I mean you've had such a unique upbringing you know when I mm. think about just in terms of your father being this Shakespearean god director yeah. Sir Peter Hall I remember you know like <laughs> that name yeah. before I even knew you know yeah. What that meant, <laughs> you know, you heard him spoke about in terms of uh, as a theater director, very powerful, precise in action mm -hmm. and in his direction and everything. Mm -hmm. He meets your mom, opera singer, bohemian, eccentric. Mm -hmm. They have you. You're kind of in all of these worlds simultaneously. And I was fascinated by something that. I read that you said that it, it wasn't so much like my goal was to be an actress. It was just like that's what I was to do because yeah. that was the world I was in. It wasn't like are you going to be a doctor or do you want to be <laughs> a teacher or, yeah. you know, none of those kind of, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You already yeah. knew because you were in that world. And running around in that world, when you read it on paper, it seems like, oh, my God, how amazing. You're running around the theater uh -huh. and you're backstage uh -huh. and you're all with these – 
crazy, eccentric, loving adults yeah. that are entertaining. But I imagine the toll that that must have had on being an only child and also being around adults and being around the theater, which is everything that we love about it is that it doesn't have that structure. Yeah. It doesn't have... It's not very binary necessarily, no. especially the theater world. I mean, no, and it the doesn't... film world can be, but yes, not this world. No, so... and it's very, yeah, it's very, yeah, all the things that you're saying. Oh, for sure. I don't, it was a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. It was, it was a little crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in a kind of wonderful way. Yeah. Um, but it was a little crazy. I don't begrudge them, but they, it was a huge lives both my parents had. Mm-hmm. And that's, and I don't, I mean, I, yeah, I, I acted, I always wanted to act. It was just there. It, I think sort of finding my way into directing is, is interesting. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've wanted to do this for so long, but I haven't. And it's sort of, I don't know, the timing of that is, I think it's, it's maybe hard to sort of find your path when, the the influences are so enormous in your mm-hmm. direct family, mm-hmm. and I think it's taken me a minute to go. It's not just acting, actually. It's mm-hmm. it's all these other things. I know. I love seeing there there. There's a lot of actresses becoming first time directors, yeah. and I love that because I think yeah. like who better to direct you than an actor themselves? Yeah, who understands that? Well, there's a large precedent of men having done it forever. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And now it feels like there's a little bit of the floodgates. I don't know. How are you feeling about all of that? Do you feel like you have more opportunities as a director? Yeah. I mean, it's not doing some press for this. Some some journalists have sort of implied like, well, it's very convenient that you make this movie now when it's so popular to make these kind of movies. And I'm like, wait, that's a bit chicken and egg, isn't it? I mean, like the reason why this movie exists now is because of the moment that we're having. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been trying to get this movie made for years. Yeah, It's it's happening now for a reason. Like the floodgates are opening and about bloody time. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. It's exciting to see so many voices having and different kinds of films, like different, you know, different takes on stories that we've not seen. And I, I'm excited to be a part of that. What I love about Netflix is that made in New York, seen by the world, you know, yeah. made on a shoestring budget. Yeah. And then <laughs> made it made in you know, <laughs> a few weeks. Yeah. And and the world will see it. It will always be there for the world to see when they're ready to see it, when they want to see it yeah. and when they discover it. And that's what I love about about the platform because it is really, really unique. It is the Netflix effect, which is extraordinary, especially for a film like this. I was so excited when we got it. Obviously, I'd heard all the buzz when it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. So that was super exciting. All right. So this season, I'm talking Mm. about fear with everybody. Oh, okay. For obvious reasons. You know, we've just come through a global pandemic. Maybe we're going into another one. Maybe we're not. Maybe it was all a dream. (laughs) You know, did it really happen? We've all lost. We've had such tremendous loss in this past 18 months. And I think that it's certainly done a number on me. And I feel like the artist has always living with acute fear. Some of it is shallow and silly and some of it is huge. Right. As you said, it's the truth of the emotion that that. You have to deliver. So, Rebecca, how's your relationship with fear these days? <laughs> oh, you know, it's a constant negotiation. <laughs> like, is this going to be fear to the point of um, 
inhibition or am I going to get through it? I don't know. I I hope I have a healthy relationship with fear. I don't think I'm paralysed by it. I think I'm probably motivated a bit by it, but ho- I hope in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you had to have a little bit going into this film, right? Yes. Um, what's that first day going to look like? Everyone has imposter <laughs> syndrome. I'll tell you something, it looked, it looked pretty comical, actually, the first day. My whole family got a stomach flu the weekend before. <laughs> and on the first day, I got it too. Oh, my God. No joke, my producer was holding a bucket. And it was an outside scene and we had paparazzi on the street. So I was just desperately trying to like not be photographed doing that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I made jokes going into it. When we were in pre-production, I would make jokes with everyone all the time. You know, those close to me. Like when we actually get to day one of this, I'm just going to be so frightened. I'll, I'll be throwing up. But it turns out I was literally throwing up for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> for, for other for, reasons. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Um, and you've made New York your home, right? Yeah. yeah. So do you feel seen there? Yeah, I love it there. I've always had a thing about it. You know, the first time I went when I was tiny, I mean, my mum worked at the Met at Bunch and I'd, I'd always love it. But then when I came to New York as an 18-year-old with As You Like It, I remember thinking then I, I'd like to live here one day. I just, mm-hmm. I love it. This feels like home for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that London is, London will always be home too, but... There's something about the marriage of those two cities that just Mm -hmm. feels like, you know, I don't and I'm not entirely full London and I'm not entirely full Mm -hmm. New York. So I need to straddle both. So you made a movie with a one year old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who's now a toddler, right? A little older, three years old. Are you going to go back on the stage? Are you going to act again? Like, where's your head at? I'm never giving up acting and I'm never giving up directing now. So... And I'm never giving up the theatre. Just means I'm going to have to give up sometime, somewhere. I don't know. It's it's a it's been such an emotional journey for me with passing, and it's so personal. And there was such a fervor in me slash compulsion to make it. I don't know that I want to direct a film unless I have that similar kind of compulsion, which I get on a daily basis, by the way. So mm-hmm. it's not going to be that long. I always ask people in every single one of my interviews, about advice. Like, what advice do you have for someone that is breaking into this business, struggling in this business, in a midway part in this business? You know, trying to find, like you said earlier, which is so interesting, trying to find your own id. You know, you had a particular Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. situation with two giant lives that you had to share with the world. You had to share these people with the world. But what advice do you have for the artist? That's a hard question. Um, or for someone trying to make that first screenplay yeah. or put pen to paper, because you you did that. Yeah. One of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got was some from someone very fancy. It was from Tom Stoppard. <laughs> we were on set of Parade's End one day, sitting out in a field, and he was like, you write, don't you? You're doing some writing. I was like, yes, I'm trying to. I love writing. He's like, of course you are, of course you are. How's it going? And I told him about some projects. And then I was like, but I don't know how to get into this thing because of yada, yada, yada. And he's like, whatever the scene is that you that made you want to do it, you know, like you read something or you envision the scene, whatever the scene is that turns you on effectively the most, just write that scene. And then write the next scene that turns you on like that. And then worry about the connecting pieces later. Because I think, I think one of the 
biggest things that certainly stops me and I think stops many artists from like getting through it is is just self-censoring you know and feeling like this isn't this isn't right or this isn't good enough or this isn't something or I've got to I've got it I'm going to hang up on these sort of like annoying scenes with where someone's walking from one location to the next so I can get to the scene that I want to write it's like those scenes will come just like write the stuff that you get excited about and work out the rest later because that's that's the driving force like you're just holding on to that thing that gets you inspired and and I think I think also just knowing that there aren't any rules you know filmmaking I think you have to it is subjective <laughs> it's you know the the only rules for a filmmaker really are your rules it just boils down to the frame and your gut and looking at it as like is this something that pleases me or is it not mm-hmm. everything and everything in it like the curtain and the little bit here and the distance of the person from this person or, and what they're saying and all the rest of it but that's really what it is and there's only your way for that so I think just listening to that mm-hmm. is key yeah it's key it's true it's true that's what they always say write what you know or write what you feel yeah Right. Instead of trying to fit into something else. Well, I'm very glad you didn't try to fit into anything else, Rebecca. <laughs> and I'm so happy that you made time for present company and for me. Because No, it's a pleasure talking to you yeah. as always. Thank it's you. so great. And I'm so excited for the world to see the film. And I'm so excited for them to see the New York Film Festival. And yeah. congratulations. I mean, this is just talk about being shot out of a cannon with your first one so this is fantastic (laughs) no I mean I could not be happier thank you Netflix thanks so much for joining me Passing is now in theaters and will be streaming on Netflix November 10th please subscribe rate and review this podcast wherever you've been listening you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company